This session is from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. For more information, please visit shepherds360.org. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I uh, am one minute shy right now, but I realize I love to meet everybody in a classroom, and I just realized I'll never make it all the way across, so I figured I'd just talk to everybody together. But uh, I met some folk from Alabama. I knew they were from the Gulf Coast because of their accent, but uh, who's from the furthest, furthest away? Anybody from the other side of the Mississippi River? Where are you from? Oh, that's a long way. That's great. Anybody from anybody from Alaska? That's probably the only way. Maybe Washington State to beat California. So, well, welcome to America. It's wonderful to have. You. Yeah. I know the feeling. My in-laws live in California. Very conservative people in a very liberal state. All right. We'll we'll bring them out to Wyoming. And we have a couple major gun manufacturers that have moved there because we love America. Anyway, and so they'll come out and they'll look at this whole end cap at a sporting goods store of Magpul stuff, which is AR-15 stuff. And I'll just slap him on the show and say, welcome to America. It's just fun. So, well, it's great to have you all today. And we have a whole lot of ground to cover. And I want to leave time for us to talk. Now, Yesterday, my talk was on the subject of education, and uh, I'll introduce myself, and then we're going to bow in prayer in just a moment, but I, uh, the reason why I'm here today is I'm the president of the Wyoming Family Alliance, and uh, the Wyoming Family Alliance is the public policy partner of a group called Focus on the Family, and um, we are just absolutely thrilled to get to interact with uh, people in public policy. And the, the way that happened in my life in ministry is I was the pastor uh, in a very small town in rural Wyoming, very beautiful spot in Thermopolis, Wyoming. It's a really pretentious sounding name, but it is supposedly the world's largest mineral hot spring. It's part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And while I was there, I had a number of people in, in my church that uh, were actively engaged in Republican Party politics. Wyoming is considered a very conservative state, which is why some of the things I'll share in just a moment are astonishing. But uh, when I was involved there, a lot of people began to interact with me and, and really taught me what my role was as a pastor in a community. In many ways, a pastor is called to be a town ethicist. And that's, that's pretty key that we would recognize that role because... In a small town like mine, probably the person that is most familiar with ethics is the person that interacts on a deep level with the Word of God uh, in a pulpit on Sunday morning. And it reminds me of that wonderful verse in Psalm 119, where David wrote, You have made me wiser than all my teachers because I love your law. And so when you love the law of God, you begin to realize you have something to share and the world needs to hear it. So I went to this first uh, conversation uh, at, a, at a precinct caucus is what it was, and then wound up getting involved to the point where within a year I became the chairman of the party. Didn't mean to do that, it just accidentally happened. And then what happened is I got involved at the state level, and then it was about a year later where I became the parliamentarian for the state party. 
And, and not because I have any sort of degree or specialty in, in, uh, in parliamentary procedure. But what happens is if you have an ethical sense of what right and wrong ought to be and how people could actually have a constructive conversation together, that's where people begin to realize it'd be great to have that person at least make sure that we're working together and dialoguing. Well, shortly after that, I then became uh, a state legislator. Didn't mean to do that as well, but a lot of people kept pushing me that direction. And so while I was in the state legislature, I wound up working on the Agricultural Minerals Business Economic Development Management Audit Committee. And then of all things, they made me vice chairman of, a, of the uh, Judiciary Committee, meant, which meant that I had to try to keep a bunch of lawyers in line. That's not always fun. But it was a really wonderful thing. The other thing you'll find very quickly is that as you interact with the Word of God and try to bring the truth out of the Word of God rather than impose your will upon it, it naturally correlates to trying to understand what law, the proper process of law, to understand what the law says, not to try to dictate to it. And so it was a pretty natural thing. After that, I became the chairman of the House Republican Caucus Committee, which is where 51 out of 60 members of the Wyoming House of Representatives were in my caucus, and I had the privilege of leading in that way. And God has given me the opportunity to marry that call to full-time Christian ministry with that background in public policy, which is how I wound up today talking about this. The other thing, too, as part of our conversation as well, is that just in the last year or so, I've had the opportunity as chairman of the board of the Cheyenne Classical Academy of founding a Barney Charter School, which is a Hillsdale College-based charter school. And we will be opening next year, but we were one of only seven schools in the nation selected this year by Hillsdale College. And so it's given us an opportunity to really engage uh, in a lot of different levels in both public policy and then also at the, back, in the, at the basis of teaching children what right from wrong looks like. And that's the reason why our conversation on ethics and public policy and how politics is really where the clash of those ethics takes place is so important today. And so with that, though, I'd like to uh, ask Carl Picard here on the front row if he would lead us to the throne in prayer, and then we'll move forward into the talk. Would sure. you please pray for us? Yes. Father, thank you uh, so much for this opportunity to come together. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, as we run to you for grace, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit, open our hearts and minds to that which we need to hear and apply in our lives, Lord. Uh, we, Lord, we know that it is you and you alone that can accomplish these things in us. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. In a letter to the Smyrnians, uh, of, I'm sorry, a letter of the Smyrnians, written after the death of their very beloved pastor in the mid-second century, we find the true account of an old pastor who had been hunted down by the authorities in his community there in Smyrna. And they had been pursuing him for some time. Their demand was that this old pastor would sacrifice incense on the altar to Caesar. Through the torture of some of his servants, he had moved out of town so he would be more difficult to find. This old pastor's location was finally revealed. The local captain of the law, whose name, by the way, happened to be Herod, 
Uh, he was dispatched with some of his forces to go out and arrest this old man. And so they went out to this villa on the outskirts. And they dragged him to the chariot and set him down. And in the letter to the Smyrnians, you get this sense. I mean, it's almost as clear as I'm saying it. He essentially patted him on the knee. And he said, there's no harm, sir, in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense. But the old pastor vehemently disagreed with that. As the chariot pulled into the arena, the people of Smyrna knew that they had been searching for this man for a long time. And so they wound up flooding the arena and the chariot began to move through. And it was somewhere in this time frame that people began to notice it sounded like a voice. They didn't know where it came from. It may have been from the upper galleries, but many people attributed it to a supernatural occurrence that called out, play the man. And he was brought through the packed crowd and stood before the magistrate, and he was told, swear the oath, and I will release you. Revile the Christ. The old preacher who had personally received the letters of a very famous martyr from three decades before by the name of Ignatius. He had literally walked with Ignatius for a little while as he was being escorted to Rome on the way to his martyrdom. He turned to the magistrate and he said this, 86 years have I been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp of Smyrna was taken and burned at the stake at the behest of a political system seeking to eradicate Christianity. Through its near would phrase that differently. They would say, it seems like the church has gotten a lot more political lately. I believe both of those ideas on either extreme are wrong. Politics has always been the outworking of Christian beliefs in our society. A genuine Christian will always live out their belief in Christ. You cannot have the one without the other. So the issues before our culture today in politics are often issues of religion. And what has happened is that a new religion is trying to supplant the old. The ethical and moral basis of our form of government has been rooted in a Judeo-Christian ethic. And there is a new ethic trying to supplant it. It's overtly religious in its core doctrines of radical autonomy on the one hand, and yet demands a radical conformity to that radical autonomy on the other. It declares to the world that it is anti-religious and yet operates from a system of virtue signaling and virtue shaming. It has its seminaries set up on university campuses across the country, like the University of Wyoming, where recent freshman training called Saddle Up, in that uh, program, which was a mandatory program, a sexuality expert with a PhD in sex, I don't know what that means, tells them, I, and this is literally, I got this right from a dad who then went to the, the board of trustees. What the statement was, was this, I encourage you to explore your sexuality in groups, alone, with videos, 
and in every other way possible. She then offers gender identity affirmation training, including, and forgive me for the crassness of this, but this is what they're talking to our children about, including classes on tucking or binding one's genitalia so that they can be true to their feelings. This is the end result of humanism and secularism. It's, and it's attendant programs of ethics and moral philosophy. In a horrific tri- uh, twist, many today believe that there is no clash of ethics simply because to them, ethics are as dead as God. I appeal, if you're wondering about that statement, to this man right here who has had more influence on your life than probably anyone else you don't know. His name is John Dewey. John Dewey wrote, There is no God and there is no soul. Hence, there is no need for the props of traditional religion. With dogma and creed excluded, note this, then immutable truth is dead and buried, and there is no room for fixed and natural law or permanent moral absolutes. Now, he's making a very definitive ethical statement. And it is the basis, as the father of modern American public education, it is the basis of our society. I I wish, I I would like for you after this to go back and listen to my talk yesterday where I go into the details of this, going backwards to Horace Mann, who was a decent man who wanted to give people a good education, but he set up a system that was easily overtaken by this man and his desperate and deceitful heresy. By the way, let me just touch on this. This man also in 1933 was one of the 36 uh, 36 signatories, co-signatories of the Humanist Manifesto. And so when you look at the humanism and the ethical background that has crept into our culture, you can see clear inflection points in our history. And that deceitfulness is not new to our day. In the Apostle Paul's day, there were some in the church in Corinth who distorted and outright nullified the truth. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The distortion that Paul is getting at in the text is not exactly what we're looking at today, but it is quite similar. What he was talking about in his day that it was that there was this idea that truth was something that was different than what was being delivered by the pastor and from the word of God. We see how in that day, in this text, how the gods of their age had blinded people to the truth. And then it helps us answer the question, what should we then, as the church, do about it in our day? Now, the context of the book shows us that some had been peddling lies. If you go backwards two chapters to chapter 2 and verse 17, Paul writes, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. In chapter 3 then, he points out how false teachers had tried to bind the Corinthians in false philosophies of man. And some had come not only attacking his apostleship, but the very basis of the gospel. And so all of that lays the background then for chapter 4, where Paul gives us six powerful verses 
that show that he refused to allow the falsehoods of his day to stand unchallenged. And that is the nature of what I'm wanting to talk to you about this afternoon. In verse 6, finally, though, he gives us this beautiful mission statement. So if we go through starting in verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, what is the ministry he's speaking of here? In the previous chapter, chapter 3, we see that he's talking about the new covenant, the gospel. It's the ministry of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, of preaching the whole counsel of God. And in so doing, what he's saying is there is no veil, no concealment of the truth. Now, that's important to remember because we, as we get into the discussion of ethics here, this is, this is a crucial understanding. He also says here that because God gave them his, this ministry, he refuses then to lose heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a passionate believer in the uh, historical grammatical understanding of Scripture, meaning that I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ at any moment. But what happens sometimes is there are people that are in such anticipation of that moment that they cease working in this culture and in this age. And that's a scary thought because the Apostle Paul clearly did not believe in that. He said, I refuse to lose heart. Through the, uh, though the world sometimes seems to line up against us just as it did him, he found strength in God's mercy. He says that, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, the world lined up against him And as they did, they often were using the levers of political power against him. You remember the Judaizers. One of the things the Judaizers would do is follow him around from place to place to incite riots. The very reason to incite those riots was to cause the magistrates to step in. And if nothing else, they were using the machinations of politics to try to silence the gospel. Does that sound somewhat familiar? Paul then says in chapter 2, verse 2 of chapter 4, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, there's an ethical claim there, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul is pointing out that there are false teachers who had come into the Corinthian church, and it seems as though, he's saying, their nature was tricky and deceitful. If you've ever wondered why politics seems to draw, attract the tricky and the deceitful, it's because that is the very nature of a lie. The lie is conceived to deceive. And so that's what we were looking at here. The word handling here is that word deluo, which means not only to deceive, but to falsify or to adulterate. Their methods were the same as they always are. Uh, uh, Whenever the forces of evil are at work, they were craftily juggling the truth using crafty arguments. And the result of that is found in verse number four. Look at that with me whose minds 
the God of this age, that is this world, eon, has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, as you walk through the text, it seems like this might be the crux. Paul is stepping into the reason why so many can't see. They can't see the truth, and they wind up tearing their world apart because the God of this age has blinded them. And where does he bring that blinding? Into their minds. This is where the clash of moral philosophy and ethics really happens. According to John 8, 44, Satan is the father of lies, and any old lie will do. He might use the lie that uh, the world popped out of nowhere, and so you don't have to believe in God. He may use the lie of Freud, that you can psychoanalyze your way out of your heart sickness. He may use what Paul described to Timothy as oppositions of knowledge, falsely so-called, meaning that there's a multitude of shifting ethics and knowledge uh, that, that change over time, but what holds all of those shifting ethics and knowledge in common is that they are there to be in defiance to the eternal truth, the eternal ethics that you and I explore through the scripture on a daily basis. And Satan uses these things to blind the eyes of our neighbors to the truth of God's word. And the more we see it, the more we see a clear distortion today of reality. I was reading a book of all things. I know this is nerd city right here, but I was reading a book on the Oxford English Dictionary earlier this year. And there was this little sojourn, this gentleman uh, talked about, and it was a fascinating thing. In 1984, a paper was presented on the case of a man who was thoroughly convinced that he had been born with two heads. And so one day he got so angry at his perceived second head that he pulled out a revolver and tried to blow it off. But Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What do we do? We literally have the privilege of walking onto this battleground where a clash of ethics occurs and shine the light everyone needs. They don't always accept it. The God of this age is shining very brightly, blinding their eyes. And yet at the same time, if we would just do what he says here in verses 5 and 6, and shine the light into the darkness, we could make a genuine difference. Now, this is where it gets really odd for me right now. Just about an hour ago, I watched two titans, two of my heroes, talk to one another. It was Dr. Wayne Grudem, whose book, Politics According to the Bible, I kept on the house floor with me and actually argued from on occasion. It was just glorious. And then he was talking to another hero of mine, Dr. Erwin Lutzer. And they're talking about this discussion of how far should we get involved? 
And what they were saying, one was saying that I, I really like to talk about the ethics and the principles, but as far as endorsing a candidate, I don't feel comfortable with that. And the other was saying, no, I've had candidates into my home as of in the last couple months, and I'm telling the whole world whom I'm endorsing. And so you look at those two titans, you know what I found out when you have two giant bull buffalo in the same, just step back and watch. Anyway, it was so good. Because this is the clash of ethics right here. And as we talk about that, let me just give you my, uh, help you understand the way I perceive this. When it comes to politics, uh, we have this heading called politics. And underneath that, we have two subheadings where everything kind of falls into line. On the one side, we have principles or ethics. And on the other, we have party or partisanship. Now, I've said this so often, if you've heard this before, please just listen again, okay? Because I really think it helps us navigate what we just heard from those two incredible giants uh, as far as men of God. We have the principles, and the principles are what guides us toward the truth, right? But oftentimes, if you're one man alone shouting at the world, nobody can hear you. You get drowned out very quickly. But if you'll find other people to join you in talking and all start saying the same thing, what happens is you actually can become heard over time. That's what we call party, sometimes known as partisanship. Partisanship is necessary to carry principles forward. Are we on the same page so far? So as we talk about partisanship, it is important that we understand that there is a role for it. But here's what I want to point out, that in that conversation, and the reason why uh, um, John Adams and George Washington were so concerned with the idea of partisanship was because oftentimes it becomes the end-all and be-all of politics. And really what we need to do is make sure that the principles always lead the conversation and partisanship comes in underneath to support the principles. And oftentimes when we watch the destruction in our society, in the political realm, what happens is principles are torn down and partisanship is lifted up. And so it takes the driver's seat. So when we talk about politics, I guess what I would say is when you look at two, those two wonderful men of God, they're both right. So it depends on the context in which you're speaking. If you're a pastor in a pulpit, it is your duty. It is an imperative to teach the truth of God to your congregation. Endorsing uh, a person for office from your pulpit is probably not right. So Erwin Lutzer is right. When it comes to your private life and people, I'm sure, come to you and ask, who should I vote for? Because you probably have studied it out more than others because you are the ethical expert in your, country, in your, in your community and you are the foremost ethical expert. What happens then is you should explain to them, well, look, this is who believes in this and this and this and this and this. Now, you know what? It may be that they're not 100% where you are, but sometimes the only option you have is to make the best of the two options ahead of you. In an ethics class this last year, uh, Dr. Burgraff, who, by the way, I want to grow up and be that guy or shrink down and be that guy. He, he is so amazing because we were talking about ethics and what he was saying was, Years ago, and, and, and when I was in Bible college, we actually had to study from uh, Dr. Um, not Gerstner, 
uh, oh, I, I can't remember it right now and I've got to move on. But we, we studied that discussion and basically he was saying sometimes you have to make the better bad choice. And the point that Dr. Burgraff was making was this. If you only have two choices, the better choice is not the bad choice. It is the correct choice. It's the only choice that you have in front of you. And so sometimes when we talk about that clash of ethics, it should be ethically based. But then what we have to understand, it is never going to be perfect on this side of heaven because the only perfect person will one day sit on a, as king of kings and rule with a rod of iron. So when we talk about this light that we have and how we're supposed to carry it, continue looking at this passage with me. It says here then in, in verse number seven that we have these treasures in earthen vessels. One of the grave challenges of ethics is that it might be possible to put it all into the realm of the abstract and never live it out. And Paul doesn't give us this out. You carry it to the world around you. You carry these treasures in yourself, in these earthen vessels. Therefore, it is imperative that we speak out. We have this ministry to speak the whole counsel of God. And in doing so, we do not lose heart. Because while the God of this age has blinded many, God, who commanded light to shine out of the darkness and has shown it into our hearts, places all of that treasure in these earthen vessels so that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ could be carried throughout the world. And that means carrying it into every culture, in every community. That's the reason why I believe every Christian is called into the clash of ethics known as politics. And so you may not run for office, but you need to at least do the research and know what you're doing and get involved. Now, I'll give you a few ways to do that, but I want to leave just a few minutes. I know that we have uh, run through our time very quickly, but I want to leave you a chance to ask a couple of questions. And I'm sure some of you, you have that look on your face like, all right, I got 15 of them. So anyway, let's start with one. Anybody, would you like to uh, ask a question right now regarding politics and, and how to be involved? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Is there, so the question, I could barely hear because of the, uh, the fan, but uh, sometimes, so the question is really, if, I, if I'm getting it right, um, are we uh, um, wrong to act as though there are only two parties and should we also consider other individuals? So there's a number of ways to approach that. And I think that one would have to look at that through the leading of the Holy Spirit. But I'll, I'll tell you the, the thought processes I've had to go through. Oftentimes in American culture today, and it's different in a parliamentary system and it's different in other places around the country, or, or around the world. The, the best choice from the, one of the leading two parties is most likely going to win. I'll give you an example. 
I thought Ross Perot. Now I was in, I think, third grade. Oh, really? Oh my! But Ross Perot, I thought, was a great guy. But the only reason why Bill Clinton won was because Ross Perot was in the race, and he won about twenty percent of the vote. So it leaves us with a conundrum. And again, this is kind of a a question ethically: How do you sort through that the, the you know the hierarchy of thinking there? And so when you think of the fact that there is great damage, the greatest damage will occur when that guy wins. There's something where we're not exactly sure what might happen here, or it will at least not be as bad as that guy. Or then we uh, vote for the third guy. What happens is that vote for the third guy could be perceived. I would not universally say that. It could be perceived as actually a vote for the bad guy because it ensures that he will win. Now, it sounds pretty harsh, I, I know, and, and, and there are occasions, and there may be an occasion someday, where, like in the UK, oftentimes the guy that is the conservative guy is no more conservative than I'm a Russian ballerina. He's just not conservative. Nothing I stand for, I mean, he's just not a good guy. So that might be different in a parliamentary system. But with the American system today, it would be difficult, I think, to unless the guy has a really honest shot. Now, we have supported in Wyoming individuals who have run as independents. And that's because they're in a heavy Democrat stronghold, so running as a Republican isn't would never is a non-starter. But what we can do is support that guy knowing that he has the chance of winning and often has. And so I think it's almost situ- situationally based. Another question? Yes, sir. Chris Peter Ford heard it. Goldburn, and I was going to seminary to emphasize don't let none of you suffer as a troublesome meddler, one who's involved in the affairs of others and has an overtone quality. Have you worked through that, reconciled it, and you thought that? You know, yes, sir. Yeah, so that's a great question. I don't know if you heard it, but he was saying in First Peter chapter 4, it says, you know, not with the overtone of politicking. Uh, so here's what I would say. I, it seems to me, as you study the verse out, have you ever seen personal or corporate politics, i.e. the kind of politics that are, happens around uh, the sometimes in a church, or I always think of a group of lawyers sitting around a big table uh, all trying to stab each other mutually in the back. And so there is a kind of human politicking that I think he's attacking there as being very wrong, trying to get ahead over with the essentially the destruction of another in the way. I think that is something different than the interactions we have concerning. And that, that's praise the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit who gives us access to truth, you know, and, and discernment. Um, but in that, sometimes that might actually be true. I don't know the circumstances of the person who's declared to be, who's been declared to be a bad guy in Florida. Uh, no, this is, I'm watching the North Carolina oh, right yeah. <laughs> and, uh Well, and, and then for example, not just North Carolina, but the situation in Georgia. Oh, yes. That. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, yeah. that's just scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the reason why, in the, why this conference is so timely. timely. So all of those decisions have to be taken into the the overarching heading of ethics. What is the ethical way forward? And so when we look at that, I asked this question of Dr. Grudem just a few minutes ago or an hour ago, 
and I asked, when, it looks, when you look at a hierarchy of things, um, and, and you look at what, are, what is the, the, the position, what is the most important criteria? What should we be looking at first? And he goes through the preamble of the Constitution. You know, and, and I, I really appreciate that. I thought he was absolutely right. What he's getting at there is there are core issues that are most important in, in any civil society. And so let's take national defense. That's the first thing he did. To provide for the common defense is core to what it means to have a nation and the whole reason why we have one. And so what Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian and prime minister, was once what he talked about with sphere sovereignty. And so when we look at the person who will make the best decisions in the right places, in, in the proper sphere of influence where they should be exerting themselves, and the other person you know when it comes to government is going to make the wrong decision, then you have to go with the guy even if it is odd and feels a little bit dis- uncomfortable. He's been placed there, and it's probably the right thing to vote for that guy. So, but it takes a lot of discernment, a lot of you, you know what? It, oftentimes you're looking at two morally corrupt people. Yeah. So, you always have to remember, even King David wasn't yeah. perfect guy. That's David right. David was strong, but God still used him to bring him life. That's absolutely right. Well, I, I know we've run past time, but I'd love to answer your question. So, well, just one quick, what do yeah. you think? I mean, because left my advice is to do research on all the politicians I have to know mm-hmm. and not understanding how to go about that. How do I get the best or yeah. how do I know which one's the most ethical? Yeah. What do you think now of uh, myvoterhub.org and iVoterGuide that have supposedly de- taken 30 same questions and asked every politician in all 50 states to answer them? And then, if they had been in office, raised them on how many times when they went behind closed doors to vote, did they vote how they told their people they were going to vote? Mm. So you have a rating, 100%, 89%, whatever. Right. What do you think of any of that? So I, I actually, I voter guide, I helped with them uh, in, in Wyoming. Okay. And then we even provided our own voter guide. One thing I would recommend, I don't, what state are you from? North Carolina. Oh, right here. So NC Family uh, with John Rustin. Um, I got their, they mailed one. Yeah. I was glad. I said, wow, I got that one too. One of the things that Family Policy Alliance has tried to do in all of our national uh, affiliates is to try to ask these questions, at least on life, religious freedom, family values, education, drug policy, and all that, and try to at least provide information. For instance, what we do is we go A plus to F. And so we don't endorse, in the primary at least, we don't endorse but we'll try to give you the information, and you can make that decision. Yeah, it's all based on, I get to make my decision because they accurately ask the same principles to all people, and I get to see their answers. That's I mean, right. I like that. They're, yeah. they're both, they're all supposed to be nonpartisan, yeah. as far as I know. Uh, they're supposed to, yeah, that's great. Thank you. One more question, and then, by the way, you guys can go, by the way, uh, I have a friend here that tells me there's this thing here where they sell manna. It's a place called Duck Donuts. Y'all, anyway, so I'm going from here to there. But uh, anyway, but so if you guys need to head out, that's great. But I'd love to answer your question. Or maybe afterward. Could we pray and then we'll, we'll do that. All right. Father, I'm so thankful for your word and for how Paul walks through uh, for Timothy. What it would be like to interact on an ethical basis in the world today.
And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to take these truths and bury them in our hearts. But, Lord, more than anything, give us wisdom. And your promise to John was, if any man lacks wisdom, he can ask of God and you'll give it to him liberally, abundantly. Lord, I pray for abundant, liberal wisdom uh, for every person who has the responsibility of voting in our culture today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2022 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.